Welcome back to Streamageddon, the podcast where we try and occasionally succeed at watching everything the streaming universe has to offer. I'm your undead host, Chris Barlow, and I'm joined by the living Diane Nora. You can see me, though, Diane. I am a ghost, but you can see me. What a crazy premise. I'm only mostly dead. Oh, that's why. That's why. Well, it just so happens we're going to talk about ghosts this episode. Ghosts and comedy. What more could you ask for? Nothing. Literally nothing. That's it. That's all we're giving you this episode. I'm kidding, of course. We've got some news. We've got some follow-up. But we do have a an in-depth discussion on the state of the network sitcom, starting with the hit network sitcom that you're not watching, CBS's Ghosts, based on a BBC show called Ghosts. We're going to compare the pilot of Ghosts with the pilot of Ghosts and tell you that they're incredibly similar, but the differences may shed some light on the state of the network sitcom. And then speaking of the network sitcom, we're going to do a little rewind review of our favorite new network sitcom, the one you probably have seen, dear listener. It's Abbott Elementary. We're going to talk about the season finale, and we have some news about what's coming up in season two of Abbott Elementary. So stay tuned, won't you? Uh, uh, Diane, are you excited to talk about comedy? I am. Sitcoms are near and dear to my heart, uh, particularly network ones, even some of the ones that may be a bit cringy. So this is right up my alley. The cringe is close to my heart, too. But let's get started, as we often do, with a bit of follow up about a little company called Netflix. Uh, you know, we are still tracking the Netflocalypse, which is just a, a slow-moving storm of bad headlines and bad press for Netflix, which is still the unrivaled streaming juggernaut, let us be clear. Uh, but what we're tracking this week is some more updates on their uh, seemingly uh, inevitable attempt to make you pay for your own Netflix account and no longer mooch off your ex-lover ex-fiancé, ex-parent, or maybe current parent. Your family life is your family life. But the uh, great password crackdown panic of 22 continues with news that Netflix is tweaking their experiment in South America and Latin America around uh, when they might prompt people to pay extra for someone else using their account. The new metric they're going by and the new kind of language they're using Uh, tells users if they're using their Netflix account under any of the profiles for more than two weeks in a new location, they will be prompted to add that location as a new home to purchase access for that additional home or house. Uh, And the idea there is, well, if I have Netflix and my parents have Netflix, those are technically two separate homes because we do not share a home, and after two weeks, it would prompt, I I, I don't know, me, them, somebody to pay $3 a month, that's at least the rate they're testing in most of Latin America, uh, to add access for me, which is still significantly cheaper than me getting my own Netflix plan. If the answer was, you know, Venmo three bucks to mom every month, uh, that's fine by me. Your mileage may vary if you're using your ex-lover or ex-fiance's Netflix. That still two weeks does not seem like a very long amount of time. I actually texted Chris after reading this article, like they can't be serious. Two weeks. 
Well, I, you, you asked a more specific question. You said, you know, what, what if you're a snowbird? In New York in particular, right. this is a really common person. They're somebody who lives in New York City, but that really means they spend most of the year in Florida for tax reasons and weather reasons, and then they come to New York during only the months where the weather here is perfect. And those are snowbirds. They would have to pay for two homes. And Diane, I think you, you make the point many of them will make, which is that seems unfair. I I think it does seem unfair if they're only in one home at a time. If you have someone in Florida and someone in New York simultaneously using the Netflix account, I think you can say, hey, you have multiple homes here. But if, you know, April to September, you use it in one place and October to March, you use it in another. That doesn't seem like you should be paying for two households. And what about folks who travel for work and are away all the time? You know, I right. sometimes they're going to, you know, the same cities over and over. That doesn't mean that they live there. Yeah. And, and then what happens if you're in, I don't know, you live in New York, but you're in Seattle on business and then you're in Chicago on business and then you're back in New York. At some point, is it going to go, well, you have homes in all three of those cities because you spend so much time in all three of them? There, there are those edge cases, you would call them, that really make it difficult to apply a policy like this, even if you don't have any debate about whether or not people are going to like this policy. But put your feelings about it aside. There are so many nuances to make sure that you don't uh, really, really piss off your customers. Because if you make this incredibly painful or annoying, or you create a system where uh, somebody is constantly reaching out to customer service to correct issues because they travel, you know, that's going to turn away a customer. And potentially this uh, grand plan to increase the overall number of subscribers by getting moochers to pay up could actually backfire and result in a net loss of subscribers if the moochers, number one, do not pay up and just leave, and if they make it even worse for the people who were not mooching to begin with, and then those people get pissed off and leave. So the risk here is high, and you can see why they're really carefully piloting this in very specific, smaller markets. Right, and hopefully they'll figure out those kinks so it won't be incredibly frustrating to and, and the listen, majority of their users by the time is, they roll it out. This is not a unique dilemma to Netflix. Uh, I, you know, I personally don't have Hulu with live TV, but I know people who have Hulu with live TV. And the live TV component, if you have it, enforces some very strict uh uh, zip code basically requirements uh, based on your IP address and location if you're watching on like a connected device like a smart TV. And they want to be sure that you are not sharing that Hulu with live TV login with people who live all across the country because that is a big problem for the live TV providers. So this is not unique, but it is unique in the uh, Netflix category, the providers who don't have a live component to worry about. I don't know of any other just regular streamer that is this district yet uh, this article which we'll link to in the show notes from the verge also has some info on how they're going to be tracking basically where you are and pretty much they'll be using sort of your account activity but also uh, your ip address and device ids um, which might bring up some interesting issues around privacy uh, as that unfolds as well could also cause issues for people who use vpns and vpns can right. be used both for privacy reasons and also to uh, evade uh, geo restrictions 
restrictions on content. Suddenly, you want to watch Star Trek Discovery or something. I don't think that's on Netflix overseas anymore, but that was the classic example. You'd, you'd use your VPN to put yourself in the UK so you could watch Star Trek Discovery without paying for Paramount+. Plus. Uh, if you start doing that, is it going to flag that as a different home because suddenly your IP address is in a different country? And then is Netflix going to go, well, that's your fault because you're not supposed to be VPNing to get around our geo restrictions. So there is a whole host of uh, side effects that could come out of this. Yeah, we'll keep tracking this uh, as they release more details and keep you in the loop. But that is not our only Netflix story this week. We have uh, an update on their ad-supported tier, which is in development and goes hand-in-hand hand with the password-sharing crackdown. If the goal is to make the moochers get their own accounts, you do want to offer them a cheaper option. If the add-on a different home to the Prime account doesn't work because you cannot convince the person with the Prime account to allow that or pay for you, okay, now you're going to get your own account. And the ad-supported tier would make that more accessible. But the ad-supported tier was not part of Netflix's original DNA. This was never something they planned for, and it's increasingly obvious because they finally admitted that the ad-supported tier will not have the complete Netflix catalog, at least not at launch, because there are rights issues, and there are a lot of shows they signed deals for where they did not include any deal component for an ad-supported tier. Right. Uh, Netflix is trying to downplay this, of course. Uh, this uh, article that we'll link to from Deadline has Sarandos really saying, oh, we expected that this would happen. And, you know, it's the vast majority of our shows will still be available. But how can we know how big a deal it is until we know which shows? Good point. I, so for me, one of the main reasons that I keep a Netflix account is for the show New Girl, which was originally on Fox, but uh, Netflix has a streaming licensing for it. Um, if Netflix were not, didn't have that show anymore, or if I switched to an ad-supported tier and I couldn't watch it, I might stop paying for Netflix. Yeah, and that is exactly the type of show that could be affected. We do not know the details, and you're really right to point that out. But this would primarily be an issue for their licensed content, which is the content that keeps a lot of people subscribed month to month. Seinfeld, New Girl, The, the Library. The Netflix originals, they do not have this issue because they are the producer on the Netflix originals. And if somehow they did not write favorable terms for their own company into those contracts, they have a a bigger problem that I happen to think Netflix has got that part under control. Yeah, they, they've said that all of the Netflix originals will be uh, available at the launch, but how many Netflix users are watching Netflix for Netflix originals, we shall see. Yes, we shall. Uh, but that's not the only things that we shall see this week, because we have some new news to cover as well. And of course, we're going to start with the most important news across the entire streaming universe. Any shred of detail about the new season of Succession. That's right, I have the microscopic shred of detail that you have just been waiting for. This comes courtesy of Time Out New York, and if you are in New York, this is very pertinent information for you, because you could finally be a part of of succession. They are casting extras to stand in the background behind, like, I don't know, Kieran Culkin. That could be you. Ah! I can hardly contain my excitement. I, I feel like a slime puppy 
It's so true. It's so true. (laughs) Uh, And they are a paying, of course. You'd get a lovely day rate. I believe this adorable graphic here in the article says that uh, non-union is allowed. Any ethnicity, anyone over 18, you do need to be an upscale type for a newsroom slash production scene. So there you go. I guess the entire season, it's it's like a bottle episode season. It all just takes place in a newsroom. A uh, new angle for succession. This this is all the details that we can spin out of this shred of a rumor, of a nugget, of a detail. Uh, there is something, though, that is a piece of information here. The uh, post, the, the call, the call to arms uh, for these extras uh, has a date that they will be filming through. Would you care to venture what date they will be filming through, Diane? Next February. I'm so sorry to tell you it's next February. Filming through next February in New York, which means like they could be filming other places too, even longer. No succession until like uh, October 2024. So sad. This would be such a devastating way to learn that we're not upscale types. Yeah, that would be the other depressing thing. I'm afraid to apply to this because if they come back and they go, yes, you look like a downscale type, uh, that would really be heartbreaking. Probably just because I've been sobbing because I have to wait so long for more succession. Yeah, you better get the emotions out of your system first. You don't want to look puffy or anything. You want to be like clean cut for this audition. But you know, that's not the only news. There is some lesser news to discuss as well. Uh, A lot of news around Disney and Disney Plus. And in particular, some new content coming to Disney Plus, beginning with some, let's say, more adult there from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a Deadpool and other R-rated Marvel movies are coming to Disney Plus. Excited, I guess. Sure. I am. I think we were curious about this before if these uh, titles might end up on Hulu instead of Disney Plus at some point, uh, possibly to protect the sort of Disney Plus family friendly brand. But it looks like they'll be available on Disney Plus with all the other Marvel content. Yes, Deadpool, Deadpool 2, and Logan, which were Marvel movies released by 20th Century Fox, because that is how complicated the Marvel licensing rights are, or were, until Disney just absorbed it all. Uh, So those are coming to Disney+. Plus. Uh, They're already there, in fact, starting July 22nd. And Disney politely reminded some users to update their parental control settings, because now there's going to be R-rated content on there. Not super shocking, because they added the Netflix Marvel Mm -hmm. uh, TV show. Shows, the Defenders shows, they call them, like uh, Jessica Jones, and those are absolutely not child-friendly. Right. So we could kind of see this coming, but it's it's here. It's here. You know what else is almost here on Disney Plus? Everyone's favorite Pixar movie, Lightyear. Lightyear has arrived to great fanfare. Can you hear all the fanfare? <laughs> I can, it's just roaring behind me. I have access to a soundboard that is playing this loud fanfare you hear right now. Yes. I just hope this won't mean we need to get into more conversations about why Lightyear is or is not succeeding. (laughs) Do we or do we not live in the universe where Lightyear takes place? We aren't even at, is it succeeding? We we need to back up to, does Lightyear take place in this timeline? Is this a Loki thing? Maybe there will be a crossover to explain it. Is this a variant of Lightyear who is um, 
uh, kind of sexy and like 2020s styled, but in 1993, because in that variation of our universe, uh, we developed better CG graphics sooner because of, let's say, the space race. I'm going to go with that. Are you suggesting like air spinoffs? Because yes, yes oh. it's such a hit. Oh it's such a hit. It had to get to Disney Plus to launch those hotly anticipated all light year, all the time spinoffs. If it had gone straight to Disney Plus, I wonder if it would have been the hit. The we... hit that it is. <laughs> yeah, the hit that it is. <laughs> Uh, we'll see how it does on Disney Plus. We will see how it does on Disney Plus, and um, I will not likely be contributing to its performance there. So I would rather live in the mystery. I just I'd, I'd rather think I might know what Lightyear is about than ever actually find out what it really is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Hold on to that suspense. Yeah, yeah. I hear it's a suspenseful film. You know what else is full of suspense? Doctor Who. And you know what's even more suspenseful than Doctor Who? Licensing deals. Which is why the peak of suspense would be a story about Disney Plus possibly being interested in the licensing deal for Doctor Who. The current run of Doctor Who. And that is interesting because Disney Plus does not air licensed content. It's, it's the Disney Channel. As we've come full circle to the 90s, it's just the Disney Channel. But now the Disney Channel's really big. I think that this is a smart move for Disney. Again, we're talking about a hypothetical deal that does not yet exist. Honestly, um, I'm not even sure I would have included the link, but it came from Bloomberg, which is, you know, typically does not run things without some decent sourcing. So the fact that somebody told Bloomberg, we're, we're interested in this. They're not saying they're definitely going to make a bid for it, but th- I think it's a big deal that Disney Plus is entertaining licensed content. And I think uh, Doctor Who is a really smart one because Mm -hmm. it's in the same wheelhouse as a lot of Marvel and Star Wars, which might help them bridge the gap between the 15 Star Wars and Marvel series that come out per year. There are stretches where there are not new Marvel or Star Wars series. Believe it or not, we are in one of those horrific droughts right now. What do you watch on Wednesdays? Maybe it's Doctor Who. Maybe. I'm not a huge Doctor Who fan historically, but the new season will have Shutigatwa as the Doctor, which has really piqued my interest. Um, Folks may know him from uh, Sex Education. So uh, that's really promising, I think. It's definitely piqued my interest. Yeah, me too. And like I said, piques my business interest as well. So we'll keep an eye on that. If the rumor continues to live, we will tell you more about it. But do you know, actually, we have more uh, Disney-related sitcom news to get to in a little bit when we talk about what's going on with Abbott Elementary, which is an ABC Disney production. But that is a part of our big discussion this episode about the state of the network sitcom. And we have to begin somewhere. So we're going to begin with the dead. And that is, of course, our transition to talk about the TV show Ghosts, as well as the TV show Ghosts. It's a twofer, Diane. Are you excited? I am. I found these shows rather delightful. Charming. 
Charming is Charming. A, a word mm -hmm. I would use. Light, breezy, uh, great background material in a lot of ways. And I'm in a mood where I'm looking for new background material to, to have on while I do the dishes or whatnot. So you know what? That is actually a great quality for a show to have. And both shows seem to have it. But we should be clear, we're talking about a British series, Ghosts UK, that has been adapted to an American series, Ghosts U.S., uh, that airs on CBS. The original on BBC uh, premiered in, I believe, 2019 and has run three series seasons to normal people. But, of course, they're BBC-length seasons, so they're on the shorter side. They've had a Christmas special, because it is the BBC. And they have a fourth season that they wrapped production on and is coming out, I believe, later this year. So it's still an active show in the UK and running longer than a lot of UK shows run. To be in a fourth season for a, a British comedy is uh, not typical. Uh, compare <laughs> that with the U.S. version, which blew through 18 episodes in the first season. It was a full network season of television immediately out of the gate and has been renewed for a second season. And I think by the end of the second season, there will be definitively more episodes of the U.S. version than the British version, or they will be on par with each other. So that, that just, I, I, the scale of how much faster the network moves in the U.S. when it is a full tilt network comedy, which is kind of rare these days, but it is just a show like, this show that has been a hit in the UK for years gets adapted to the US, takes a couple years in production to premiere, and already the US version is en route to surpass the overall volume of the British version that's been out for years. That's just the difference in scale, right? And I think that kind of comes into play as we compare the pilots, too. I think you'll see how that's built into the DNA of an American sitcom. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They want something with room to grow and also room to spin its wheels in a way. Yes. Something that can really um, stay the same, like characters who are easily recognizable. This show is uh, what we call high concept, which means it's something that's, uh, you know, easy to articulate what it is about. It is a show about ghosts. It's not a tiny character study about men grieving. No, it's a silly show about people seeing ghosts in a haunted house. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So the basic premise, and it is the same in both, is that a couple looking for their first home or looking to, to buy a house one way or another, a uh, little different depending on the version, but same idea, a couple inherits a large manor, uh, a British manor in the British version, and just, you know, a big old house in the American version, and uh, they decide to take ownership of it only to discover it is haunted by ghosts. And of the couple... In the pilot, the wife has a kind of near-death experience, and that leaves her with the ability to see the ghosts. So we have a hilarious setup where the ghosts realize they can be seen, and the wife is the only one who can see them, which of course means there will be many hilarious hijinks involving the husband who cannot. It's a clever concept. Uh, lots of room for big comedic, like a slapstick-type comedy. Yeah, absolutely, because people can walk through other people. The, the ghosts can uh, mostly not interact with the physical world, and that's a major point, is they, they walk through things, people walk through them, they can't pick up objects, really, but they can, in some limited ways, interact with the world around them, which, of course, gives you the ability for them to try to haunt people, to scare them, to get into wacky hijinks, as the undead are wont to do. 
So for you personally, which of the two ghosts series did you watch first? Well, I felt like I had to watch the original first. So I started with the British version uh, and that pilot's about 30 minutes long. Is that what you did? I did too. Yeah. It's streaming on HBO Max for those who haven't seen it. If, if you want to uh, watch. Yeah, we should say these are, of course, thanks to the beauty of streaming rights on two completely different services. So you can watch the <laughs> British version on HBO Max and you can watch the American version on Paramount Plus or CBS. Uh, but the British version, I think if you're going to pick one to start with, I, I would start with that one. And HBO Max, whoa, as I've said many times, one of my favorite streaming services. So why not go check it out there? What do you think of it as a pilot? It moved so well. It really gets through the material and like progresses the plot quite a lot in a very quick amount of time. Like we're introduced to a lot of characters and not only did we get to know the two people in the couple, but each of the ghosts' personalities was pretty clear in just a very quick episode, which I was really impressed by. You know, it's so funny. I agree with you. And I think specifically the exact things you just called out. I think the U.S. pilot did all of those things better, but I like the British pilot more. Interesting. I really do think the U.S. one moved even faster without sacrificing the point of the pilot. That there's a, a B story in the British pilot that's not there in the U.S. pilot. And I didn't mm-hmm. miss it until I went and looked back at my notes on the British pilot. And I was like, oh, yeah, there was that B story. And it's a good B story. It's one of the ghosts is the um, ancestor or kind of distant, distant relative of the, the wife in the couple that moved in that's how they wind up inheriting it is like there's basically no heirs left and the wife is very tangentially related to the person who died in the house that person we see for like uh 15 seconds at the opening of the the series and then she dies all the ghosts are watching her die and there's this moment that does both do a good job of communicating most ghosts go up and disappear to whatever the afterlife in the beyond is but some ghosts get stuck doomed to walk the earth and the and so we know from literally the first 30 seconds of both the u.s and the uk pilots that these ghosts are ghosts who are trapped on earth from different time periods most ghosts do not get trapped on earth so it's not like the earth is covered in trillions of ghosts it's more of a unique situation but it's also common enough that that when someone dies they all watch to see well are you going to stay with us or go and, and one, both communicate that really clearly. But that one mm-hmm. moment, okay, so the British pilot, they're all standing around watching her die, and they split up the dialogue a little bit so it's a little less on the nose. And the other pilot, the U.S. CBS television pilot, one of the ghosts just straight up says, like, we are ghosts. We are doomed to stay here. Will you stay? Oh, nope, she's gone. And, I, you know, it was, that's why I like the U.S. one less, but it's why I really respect the, like, ruthless efficiency of the U.S. pilot. Because they have no time for you to not be 100% clear on the concept of the show. The British one, you you can take a little more of a trust that the audience will catch up if they don't catch that one line of dialogue. Because in the British pilot, if you just were not listening clearly, you might not pick up that the piece of information that is, these are ghosts who got stuck, and most ghosts don't get stuck. You might not pick that up right away in the British one, where the U.S. one is like, I will say that so loudly and in your face that if you do not understand that concept, that fundamental 
conceit, then you just, there's no hope for you. I'm so sorry. Okay, but we both watched the British one first and understood exactly what was going on, right? I mean, I understood it better, faster, harder, better, faster in the the US one. This is again, it's like I did understand it in the British one, but I respected how they were not going to let me have a shadow of the of a doubt. I, I again, ruthless efficiency in the US one to say this is just a really necessary piece of information. And we gave the line to the funniest ghost. They give that line to uh, the ghost played by uh, uh, Brandon Scott Jones, who mm-hmm. is, you know, just perfectly cast in so many ways, dressed as like an old fop who died of dysentery. And, you know, they're like, great. Yeah. Is it a clunky piece of exposition? Yes. Give it to the funniest cast member. He'll sell it. And he does. And again, is it as nuanced or relatable and realistic as the, the writing in the British one? No. No, but that is not what a U.S. network sitcom on CBS is supposed to be. I always wonder if they're making that adjustment for American audiences or for American network executives who can't be bothered to read a script too closely. Mm -hmm. I think both both are real. We should say um, the the team that created the British version largely was responsible for translating it to U.S. audiences. Uh, The the creators and producers at the top level are... um, you know they they are intimately familiar with the work and you and again the pilot for the US version follows the setup of the British pilot like to a T minus this one B story that doesn't fit in the 22 minute runtime on US TV the the real differences in the two pilots are more tonal i think and mm-hmm. moments like this where the exposition in the U.S. pilot just hits you over the head because that's the somebody is not trusting that the U.S. audience can follow along. And who is not trusting? I don't know. I think you ask a really good question there. I do think, I mean, I did notice that the exposition was heavy in the U.S. version, but it really didn't bother me. It's still a funny show. They breeze past it and... That's the you thing. Know. The U.S. one moves so fast. I, and I don't know. Maybe if I watched them in the other order, I would say the British one felt slow. But it didn't feel slow. I thought the, the pace of the British pilot, the original pilot, which, again, we watched first, felt right. And then I watched the American pilot, which has to find some way to shave eight minutes off of the exact same story. And it just everything about it felt like, well, you, you managed to speed everything up in a way where the the speed is an asset to the episode and doesn't feel rushed. No, it didn't feel rushed at all. And I also think that some of these issues about exposition will become non-issues completely once we move past these first few episodes and we've really established this world. Also, I think part of that is a permission to have characters who do deliver exposition because in a, an 18 mm-hmm. episode a season network comedy you're going to introduce random you know guest star characters uh, week to week you're going to have things come up that uh, you need to quickly e- e- exposit to the audience because you have basically five minutes per act of the show right it moves very quickly I also did find the US both pilots introduce uh, you know, a cast of ghosts that are uh, pretty recognizably from 
obviously costume, but also behavior and performance, uh, you know, different character types. You can pretty quickly begin to assess, like, uh, this, this, you know, if you were watching this as a theater history student, you'd be applying your, like, different commedia dell'arte types to them. You'd say, well, this one is the Pazzo, and this one is the Babazzo, because that's what I remember of theater history class. Uh, but uh, the U.S. version, I think, does it better. I'm going to say it. And again, it's because oh. it's a little on the nose. And I don't always like it more. I think a great example, again, Brandon uh, Brandon Scott Jones, fantastic actor. I fucking love this man. Love this man on The Other Two and The Good Place. Um, he's the gay one in the U.S. Uh, ghosts. He is very clearly the gay ghost. There is a gay ghost in the British version. The gay ghost in the British version, you could easily watch the pilot, and if you were not looking at the screen at the right moments, you would not know which ghost is the gay ghost because it's all subtext and closeted like looks and things for the most part. That obviously will come out more fully later, but, but that's the difference tonally again is the British ghosts can play their character types a little closer to the chest in the pilot, and the American ghosts are just like... Hello, I'm the one who sings. Would you like me to sing now? <laughs> and the thing is, in a pilot, in a 22-minute network pilot, for a goofy comedy like this, I respect the choice. It is not sloppy writing. It is not accidental. It is so clearly like, well, how are we going to introduce a cast of like a dozen characters in a 22-minute pilot? If you brought a 22-minute pilot introducing 12 characters to your like script writing class, you, you would get an F. They would say mm-hmm. that is too many characters to introduce in the pilot of your CBS network sitcom. You did not do the homework. But... This is how you do it for for again a tight American audience. This is how you do it. He is the gay ghost, but he's really the closeted ghost. And it seemed like almost all of his jokes were him saying something gay and then being like, "Oops, I can't say that." That's such a joke that we've seen so many times on American sitcoms. And I really hope they'll let him do more because, as you've said, he's a great comedic actor and he is capable of far more. Uh, but his timing is great. His delivery is so strong that it was still very charming. Uh, and I think that some of those other characters on the British version were just maybe characters that are a little more stock characters from. British television. Like there there's the that. sleazy politician, which in the US version becomes like the finance bro. Those are both, you know, a, a British archetype and yeah. and an American archetype. Not yeah. that we don't have sleazy politicians here. Those are universal. No, but there are some some real clear translation choices they made. Like, again, the, the gay one in the American version is this... Uh, he looks like he might have been a British soldier or something. He, he's dressed in colonial garb and died oh, like of, a, like, yeah, revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't... Whatever color that was. It, it was... It's like a... It's a blue that I cannot associate with either side. So maybe he was French. I don't know. Uh, the... Uh, British version, the gay one, is like a World War II uh, person. He's he's dressed for, you know, mid-century army uh, and is very clearly buttoned up and does not have those like, oops, I said the flamboyant thing moments. No, 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 no. He is much more like totally in the closet the way you would have been in the World War II times, uh, especially in that part of the world. Uh, but the the difference there, one of them is just 
funnier haha out of the gate, even if it's not deep or um, intelligent writing. And again, it's not a mm-hmm. critique on the actor at all. It is just like one of them, the choice is it's just surface funny. And the other one, the choice is, ooh, it's a little more of a character study. And there's humor in the looks. And there's there's a, a potential for very funny comedy when he is very attracted to the husband, clearly. And now he's got 18 episodes to get to that depth. So starting at a really broad place is not a bad place to start for this audience and for this structure. Correct. Correct. You know, it is... Part of it is saying, I don't trust the audience to figure all this out if I do not tell you these are the things to look for. Mm-hmm. But there is another way to say the exact same thing, which is you're helping set the audience's expectations for what kinds of comedy and what kinds of stories and jokes and characters they can look forward to if they continue to watch this series. And if you're if you're listening to all of this and you're like, why are you spending so much time talking about this ghost show? It is like, until Abbott Elementary came along, it was the only successful new network sitcom of the 2021-2022 season. So it's a hit. It is not just a hit that, oh, it was so popular in England, they decided to bring it to the States. It's a hit on CBS. And it's very good. I mean, I'm certainly going to keep watching. I may watch it, as you mentioned, like as a background it's show. It's so perfect. Because also, you know, we've shared our love before. You, you've got me rolling on how much I love this show that I have already admittedly said is not as good as the British version. But I love <laughs> the American version because it reminds me a lot of like why I would love to put on an old Law & Order in the background. We have both shared mm-hmm. our love of this and our disappointment in how Law & Order has kind of evolved to be much more soapy and serialized in some way ways because you lose the ability to put it on while you fold the laundry and you walk out of the room to go get something and when you come back in you've missed a scene but on law and order the classic you know mid-90s law and order it doesn't matter because in the next scene jack mccoy is going to come in and go i can't believe he didn't take our offer and then someone else will walk in and go it's okay he didn't take our offer because we just got a new clue and then they'll cut to the cops who go here's the new clue and they will lay every step out for you as as many times as necessary, just in case you were in the kitchen getting a glass of milk. And Ghosts, the U.S. version, has the same thing in its DNA, where it's like, don't worry, if you're not paying 100% attention to this show, it's still funny, you'll still follow it, it we, we are not demanding your full attention. And there is something... I really respect about a show that admits like we don't need your full attention to entertain you and in fact that might be asking more of you than we need to ask of you especially when you know the streaming universe is so saturated right now it's a great a great strength to come in and say we're TV that will not drain you because you have to follow it so closely and you have to be so riveted you know. Yeah, it reminds me of this story that um, the classic sitcom director James Burroughs tells. James Burroughs worked on, like, every multicam sitcom you can think of from, like, the 70s through the early 2000s. Um, uh, He talked about when he first read the pilot for Cheers, he said they had brought radio to television because the dialogue was so strong that you could really just listen to it. The voices were so unique that you knew who the characters were without really needing to follow the plot necessarily. It was more about the dialogue and and these characters were what, 
brought you to the entertainment. Um, and I think this absolutely has that quality. Yeah, yeah. And for think, that reason, could run for a really long time. I think it really could. I think, you know, the difference here, at least on the, the surface level to start, is, you know, Cheers, you want to hang out in the bar with those people. They kind of become like a second family in a way. I'm not sure I will get such a deep affection for the characters on Ghosts. But that doesn't matter necessarily and i'm not saying it won't happen maybe it will happen you like you said with you know the example of brandon scott jones they've now sure his initial introduction is pretty surface level this is the gay one humor but now that we've established that we have tons of runway 18 episodes per season you know six seasons in a movie however long it goes for them to explore that and for them to let him have you know a, a deeper relationship with the audience and that's true for basically all of the main ghosts and the main couple. I will say, as we're talking about the differences here, the difference that drives me the craziest is the main couple and how tonally they are so different in the American version and they feel like they are ripped out of some glossy magazine in the American version and and in ways that are both visual, they just are dressed way nicer in a way that again feels like Pinterest, you know, uh, inspiration board uh, versus stuff you bought at, you know, Marshalls. I it, it is just I don't know what the I don't know what the UK equivalent of just like the regular department store is, but in the British version, they look like real blue collar ordinary people, and in fact, the the dialogue supports that a bit more. In the British version, we see a little bit of them looking for a flat, and they mention they can't afford their own house, but they they're getting their their first place together is the basic vibe. They're they're seem to be newlywed. They don't directly say that, but they're a young couple, uh, and. And they cannot afford a house in the British version. So the fact that they inherit this manor, they're, they're both a little more gung-ho in trying it out because they don't have another great alternative sitting, waiting for them. In the American version, the couple, they're like power-hungry Brooklyn hipsters who work in corporate culture, grind, always like working too late to live in a little shoebox in Park Slope. Oh, life is so hard when you both make six figures and have no children and no responsibilities outside of your job. And and I, the, tonally, that drives me crazy because also it part of it part of it is just like it's less relatable it's less real there are just fewer people who are actually like that in the world instead of normal working people who struggle to afford something like a house and on top of it it's this thing that you see on network tv a lot where it's like oh these coastal elites they're in out of their depth these coastal elites think, oh, a free house. We'll turn it into a bed and breakfast. They don't know what it's like to actually have to deal with a house and deal with a bed and breakfast. Uh, and that is so boring to me. I forget that I am a coastal elite and find it kind of like a, a weird childish, you know, um, rural America versus coastal America thing. It's just boring because it's like, well, the, even the people who live here aren't as dumb as that. No, and I hope that they'll let them move a little bit beyond that as we get some more details about who these characters are. Um, you know, obviously we start with really broad strokes here. But yeah, it's basically the Beverly Hillbillies where uh, the city folk think with all their school learning don't really know a thing. But 
you know, I like these two actors, um, Rose McIver and Karshambudkar. Uh, him especially, I think he's he's really funny. I hope that they get more opportunities to grow in these roles. Um, and they also seem to ratchet up the fighting between them, which seem like uh, American audiences really need to have like the bickering couple at the center. And uh, I thought that the 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 British couple were a little bit more supportive and, and sweet to each other. Um, Honestly, yes. I, I would say that's a really good differentiation to call out. I I was a little cringy at the fact that the they the paint they paint the the woman in the American version as being kind of flighty and impulsive in a way that is a little manic pixie dream girl influenced and uh, mm-hmm. and and it, it just feels a little too stereotypical and and again I've just been praising them for the ruthless efficiency of just leaning into stereotypes in the pilot so I I agree that they had now have a chance to let these characters. Um, actually be a little more relatable and somebody who we actually want to spend time with. And I imagine they do, because for the show to be as popular as it is, I think you have to like the main characters. Uh, You don't just tune in to watch them get tortured by these practical Joker ghosts, you know? There's got to be a bit more meat than that. So so I think you're right about that. And uh, I am fully willing to admit that I am both praising and deriding the show for the exact same tactic. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's just sort of where I fall on network sitcoms, (laughs) like the predictability of them is what I keep coming back for. And it also frustrates me from time to time. Yeah. And again, when it, when it works, when, when it shows the strength of a lean, mean network sitcom, I think it's, I think it's so brilliant because it is so efficient and it is such an art form to squeeze uh, both jokes and character and story into these really tight constraints. And there were some moments in that U.S. version where, they, again, they both basically follow the same story. And in both of them, you know, the, the, uh, the wife uh, has a near-death experience, which results in her being able to see the ghosts. The difference, and I thought this was a huge difference, in the British version, it's the the... Uh, skeezy politician. The skeezy yeah. politician, his special ghost ability is that he can occasionally touch objects in the real world and move them. And and we learn through the pilot, each ghost has something kind of like that, where depending on how they died or what happened to them, there's one little thing they can sort of influence in the real world. And his is the most, the, the other ghosts, you know, basically say like, yours is the coolest because you can make things move and we might be able to use that. And so in the pilot in the British version, he wants to kill them, the, the the new couple moving into the house. He thinks basically, what if we just kill them now before they do anything that uh, interrupts our, our kind of peace and solitude here? And he gets voted down, but then he sees an opportunity when the wife has her head out the window and he pushes her out the window. In the American version, the same type, the finance bro, is trying to... Um, scare them he's just he's spearheading this effort to maybe we can haunt them away and scare them away he has the same power to knock things over but the other ghosts and and have all decided oh we could use that to try to scare them into selling the house and leaving us alone 
and he can't knock this vase over. He tries to knock this vase over to scare them, and he can't do it. And so he, his, he's got ego in it now, and he keeps trying to knock it over. And one of the other ghosts is there with them, and now everyone else has given up on haunting them today. And he finally knocks the vase over, and that's when she walks down the hall and trips and falls down the stairs on the vase. Like, it is a pure accident in the U.S. version. I found that difference really interesting. I don't know if it really makes a big difference in the long run for the show, but it, it's, I thought it said, one, we don't want you to think any of the ghosts are murderous. That that is something that either they decided they regretted in the original or that they don't think American audiences will engage as well if they think the ghosts might kill them, right? And number mm-hmm. two, I thought just the way that that plot came together was so much more efficient and kind of satisfying as a tight little story for the character in the U.S. version. Because in the U.S. version, it's like, you have this power. You can haunt them. Oh, you didn't do it. I'm going to master it. And by trying to master it, I accidentally almost kill them. That, to me, a little more straightforward, a little more satisfying as a little bite-sized sitcom story versus, mm, I want to kill them. Don't kill them. I see the opportunity to kill them. Now I tried to kill them. I regret trying to kill them. They're both interesting, but one of them is a sitcom. It also, again, gets back to the issue of 18 episodes. When you have these sitcoms, you need these characters to really be someone you want in your living room for a good chunk of the year. And if you think this guy, this ghost guy, kills young women, I think that the CBS executive who gave the note saying, hey, uh, this is not going to fly for Nancy from Ohio, may be correct. I did mention a lot about this B story that got cut, so I feel like I should end on, mm. do you what do you have any opinion about this? The B story is that this uh, distant ancestor... Is screaming. Is screaming. So the, the wife's, like, distant relative uh, wakes up, that ghost wakes up in the middle of the night every night and jumps out of a window and screams and wakes up all the other ghosts. And that's the B story in the British pilot. And what we learn at the end of that B story is that she screams and does this because she was murdered, pushed out of the window by her husband. That's how she died. She's reliving her death every night. And in a very great, I think, sitcom way, their solution to this problem is they just change the like, grandfather clock in the, the house that goes off at that time every night. So it goes off in the morning and she jumps out of the, the window in the morning and everyone gets up for the day. And it's a cute little bee story. I don't know if it needed to be there because I didn't miss it in the U.S. pilot and I would not be surprised if that B story is integrated into a later episode in the first season. Yeah, I mean, I thought it worked perfectly well and I also think, you know, if you have a 30-minute versus a 22-minute runtime, you're going to want a B story to keep our interest and also just to give us a little bit more rounding out of some of these characters. But um, I... I think that, once again, it might be a little dark for U.S. audiences that she was murdered by her husband, though uh, that character is, the husband character does not exist as a ghost, so maybe people wouldn't care so much. Um, I'm going to keep watching. 
Yeah, I, I this is my new background material. I'm I'm on board. Uh, and and we'll continue with both versions. Although I think the US one is the, the strength of the US one is it's punchy and it's 22 minutes and you don't have to pay super close attention to enjoy yourself. And the British one, at least from the pilot, I would say that one, it's a, a bit more of a an actual TV show that you might want to watch in addition to listen to while you do something else. But it's also a little bit funnier. The British one? For me, yeah. I think, I I mean, think the I British think, one is a little funnier. I think there's more visual humor in the British one. I think there's more mm-hmm. of an overall humor. Like, the, the British one has a more consistent style and tone where each part has a part to play in the jokes. And the American one is much more joke-per-minute ratio in the script. And that is not surprising in a lot of ways. That is the nature of a network sitcom, classically, pretty much always was. There has been a lot of talk lately about the network sitcom being dead. Um, And I love that one of the ones that revived it is the show about the undead. I know, it fits, right? Ghosts is here to bring the ghost of network sitcoms back to life. But you know, Ghosts has a little bit of help when it comes to reviving the network sitcom. And that in the business is what we call a segue to talk about a show near and dear to both of our hearts. Abbott Elementary gets the full theme song. I love them so much. Abbott Elementary, we're doing a little rewind revisit as we continue our discussion of the network sitcom. Are reports of its death overrated? And I think they are, because Abbott Elementary, one of our favorite shows of the the current uh, season or year, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's been renewed. We already knew that. What's new news and relevant to our conversation today is uh, ABC has announced that they have extended the order for season two from 13 episodes to 22 episodes. So we are getting a full-blown network TV 22-episode sitcom season of Abbott Elementary premiering in September. I could not be more excited. Oh, I'm delighted. I hope that they have episodes that are so silly and have nothing to do to propel the overall plot forward. I want, like, classic sitcom nonsense shenanigans. Which you get permission to do with such a big season Mm -hmm. order. I I think one of the other reasons I want to keep watching the U.S. version of Ghosts in particular is exactly because it has so much runway that there can be just goofier episodes with a comedy and so much time to fill. You have to try more stuff. And in some ways, you know, part of the reason that uh, shorter seasons became popular is your hit-to-miss ratio is not going to be as good when you have so many episodes to fill. And I'm, I'm prepared for the possibility that, you know, each individual episode, I may, there may be some I don't like as much as season one of Abbott Elementary. Like, I am willing to admit that with 22 episodes comes the very likely possibility that I won't love everything they try that season. But I bet they will try more things and that I will really love some of the new things they do. And I, I agree with you completely. Go goofy. Go wacky. Go big and ridiculous within the scope of the show. Yeah, and then they can still have moments where they go poignant and sweet, because I think that's a a major element of the show, too. But you know, 
Uh, speaking of poignant and sweet, poignant and sweet describes the season finale of Abbott Elementary, and I thought it would be a great moment for us just to discuss it. I, uh, when we talked about doing this, I described that episode as instant classic. And I stand mm-hmm. by that statement. I think the season finale of, of Abbott season one is not just a classic of the show, but like instant classic U.S. network sitcom episode. And also classic of a, a certain type of network sitcom episode, which is the one where they go somewhere. It's, you know, yeah. so many shows like Ghosts, like Abbott Elementary, they, the, they're they anchored in the place they take place. They take place at the house. They take place at the school. And 99% of the scenes are shot there for a variety of production-related reasons. But then that means, you know, once or twice a season, you have the episode that takes place somewhere else. Like when Seinfeld had the episode in the parking garage. And you were like, whoa! They're not in Jerry's apartment at all! And so for Abbott, the season finale, we get the zoo trip. It's a field trip to the zoo. And I love everything about this zoo trip. It's a really funny episode. And it also has some major plot points that I've been that they'd really been teasing over the course of the season. What's going to happen with Janine and her boyfriend? Uh, Will all the teachers come back to teach next year? And I I was happy with where they ended things and also still on enough of a cliffhanger to tune in next season. Yeah, I I agree. I I just want to read, this is like the synopsis of the the episode, and it's also just such a good, it's like such a good nugget of like, yes, this is how a show that is firing on all cylinders in this format, this network sitcom format, this is exactly what an episode should sound like. Uh, While on Abbott's annual zoo field trip, Tariq reveals that he has been offered a job in New York. Janine struggles with a big choice. Barbara starts questioning her future after finding out her favorite Tuatara has been retired because of old age. That's it. That's the episode. It tells you basically everything you need to know about this episode. And what's great is it is rooted in the characters, but takes advantage of the change of setting. The Tuatara is the main event in uh, the B story with uh, Barbara Howard. Barbara Howard always takes her students to see this lizard, the Tuatara. She's been taking them to see the Tuatara since her first year teaching 30 years ago. Well, guess what? That Tuatara has been retired this year, and Barbara has to take a deep look at herself, and is it time for her to retire? Good news, Barbara Howard's not retiring, but I loved that that is all character-driven. It's all about how Barbara feels about herself and brings together a lot of the the things that she's been feeling all season, with her daughter coming in as a character, uh, with Janine coming in and kind of looking at her as an elder statesman, so to speak. You know, it was a great natural kind of end point for her season arc. Uh, and it has to take place at the zoo because what makes her th- have that moment of reflection? The Tuatara. I loved that too. I also thought that thematically it was a great um, foil for the plot that Janine has, where Barbara is worried maybe I haven't done enough to change my life. Maybe I've been in this same pattern for too long. Janine is almost in the opposite position, saying, like, uh, you know, um, Am I ready for change? Uh, should I so make a big I, change? Should I move should I to make New York a big... with Tariq? Yeah. Or should I leave this relationship that I've been in since I was basically a child? Um, Correct. So, yeah. 
Um, which, in a which, way, I just also want to point out, like, Janine's conflict in this episode, classic sitcom structure. You take a character where you know what she wants is for things to stay the same, and you put her in an impossible position where there is no choice where things stay the same. She must either give up her life at Abbott and go with Tariq, or she must give up the only relationship she's ever known in her adult life with Tariq in order to stay at Abbott classic structure and perfect for a finale episode where she has to kind of have an emotional moment about it which is added on to by the fact that it happens in a hot air balloon and we know from earlier in the season that Janine is terrified of heights also liked that in certain ways it subverted that sitcom question of so often on sitcoms there's this idea uh, I think in Friends they call it the lobster that you have one person who you're meant to be with and that you met this person at a very young age um uh I think that the POV of the show seems pretty clearly to be pointing that it's time for Janine to move past Tariq even though Tariq is extremely lovable, incredible performance by Zach Fox. But, um, you know, he's not a great boyfriend and they're not, you know, particularly well suited to each other as adults. And she clearly uh, has feelings for Gregory. Yeah. Who Gregory, who reveals in the finale that he's taken a full-time position at Abbott, which is part of what helps Janine realize what her real, you know, her future is to stay at Abbott uh, with these people who she's building this life with, you know. But more importantly, I just want to point to Tariq, because when he was introduced earlier in the season, he's, he's hilarious. The performance is amazing. But from the instant you meet him, your reaction is honey, you got to get out of this relationship. Janine, baby, like, have some self-respect. And what I love about Tariq's arc in the season is that by the finale, you still feel like they're not good for each other, but he Mm -hmm. is actually excelling in the thing he wants to do in life. And because this is Abbott Elementary and and it is a show that is fundamentally kind of about kind-hearted people trying to make a difference in a really uh, fundamental way, like in children's lives, the thing that he's found is like this ridiculous drug prevention wrapping thing. But it's great. Fade. Because Fade, what's great is it's silly, but it's also, it does good and he is excelling at it. And it has this really relatable nugget of like, it takes you back to those weird dare presentations and you're like, wow. Wow, that was yeah. somebody's passion to deliver that. And it's so sweet and endearing to see that uh, in, in, in a character who otherwise we do think is bad for Janine. Yeah, it's not quite like the Jim and Pam scenario where Pam's old uh, fiance was just like not right for her and kind of a jerk to her. This guy, while he might not fully appreciate how incredible Janine is in some ways. He obviously loves her a lot. And, you know, and he's just so lovable. I, if he does move to New York, uh, I hope that they find ways to keep bringing him back on the show because he's become one of my favorite characters. Same, same. I have a feeling that they've got some ideas there. Uh, But that is just a a taste of what we're loving about Abbott Elementary. And I think it ties in real, real nicely with the state of network sitcoms, because what you can see is if you do it well, there's so much to talk about. There's this structural element of just a well-made machine that both I think Diane and I love to geek out on. But there's also the the story, the characters, and the jokes. And as fundamental as it sounds, that's the recipe for a network sitcom. You want to have a 
small bite-sized stories that slowly contribute to a larger story that moves very slowly. One of the geniuses I think of Abbott is the structure of a school year has a nice built-in arc to it every season. We know every season is going to cover a school year for Janine, and that gives us the pace that we're going to see the the big story unfold at, so that then each little story can be a little more self-contained. And then the jokes and the characters. And the characters right across all the episodes, and like the story, change very, very slowly so that you can drop into just about any episode and know the relationships and feel like you're you're caught up. So that the jokes, which are the final fundamental piece, hit. And that way you can have a high joke-per-minute ratio, and even if not all of them hit, enough of them do that people are like, that's a really funny show! I love it! And I do love it. I really love both of these shows. And I think when sitcoms work so well, it is because they are both relying on tropes that we expect and then also giving us something surprising. And I think both uh, Ghosts and Abbott Elementary do this. So I hope that we'll see networks continue to be bold with their sitcom programming. Um, You know, it's one thing to keep giving us the same thing year after year, but I think that was part of the problem that we might have seen with network sitcoms that people weren't watching them because they'd seen it a thousand times before. And so if you give us this structure that works so well, but then bring in creators with really fresh ideas like Quinza Brunson, you can have these huge successes. So more of that, please. I think we might get more of that. If I was going to say where I think the trend is going in, in comedy in particular, it we're coming out of what a lot of people thought was a tough period for uh, TV comedy in general, not just the network sitcom, which was struggling the hardest, but in general, com- a lot of just straight comedies, for lack of a better term, have not broken through recently. The hit mm-hmm. comedies have all been really dark comedies or serialized comedies. They've been stranger shows, uh, again, for lack of a better word. Uh, I like to think of uh, one of the last sitcoms on network TV that got me so excited before this year was The Good Place by Mike Schur. Uh, He created Parks and Rec, and he created a lot of um, classic shows that follow a more traditional sitcom structure. But The Good Place was a break breakout hit because it was like a serialized mystery sitcom Uh, and if you had the end of the first season spoiled you almost couldn't watch the first season at that point because it it borrowed from Lost and those kind of puzzle box shows and the seasons were shorter because the narrative was tighter overall the big picture narrative had to move forward every episode structurally so different from a show like Ghosts and like Abbott Elementary And, and personally I think Something that actually was not a good influence on the network TV landscape as a whole, because that kind of show works great on streaming, and The Good Place has had a ton of success in its placement on streaming since it aired, and it was successful on NBC, but Mike Schur always knew it was something that wasn't going to run for very many seasons, because you can't just drop into a middle-of-season-three random episode and know what's going on and know the characters and their relationships and their dynamics. You have to be following it week to week. And there were more, I feel like, more comedies that tried out this serialized format based on 
on the success of The Good Place. And in reality, The Good Place was like the exception that proves the rule, not mm. some new direction that network sitcoms should go. And so I think we saw a lot of experimentation, which is never bad necessarily, with shows like Good Girls. If you remember Good Girls, that's like I an, do. an action comedy show, but was also heavily serialized, influenced by Breaking Bad and shows like that. That struggled to find an audience on network because, again, it's serialized. You really have to be engaged week to week to follow it. And what we're seeing now, I think, my guess, my my big picture takeaway is that the classic sitcom structure is uh, having a renaissance as people realize that if where you're airing is network TV, this is the structure for the, the comedy genre that works the best. Very interesting. I think that this classic structure, too, will see go beyond network. Like, Netflix is making a few multicam sitcoms, which the networks hardly do at this point. So we might see, too, that streamers pick up this idea, too, that having a show where you can do a ton of episodes per season will really pay off. Yeah, and Netflix will be an interesting one to watch there because their originals, and other streamers too, the, the comedies are often the short seasons that have been in vogue on streaming. And what Netflix, and again, a lot of other streamers, but Netflix is the example du jour, you know, are realizing is we need to beef up our back catalog as we lose licensing deals for Friends and The Office. We need shows that have 200 episodes. And you cannot just make 200 yeah. episodes appear out of thin air. But there are some genres, like the multicam network sitcom style, where you can churn out more episodes at an astonishing pace. Uh, I remember, this is a little tangential, but hey, we're, we're, we're wrapping up, folks, so leave you with something to check out. I remember watching the on HBO Max the documentary about Fresh Prince. Did you get a chance mm. to check that out? No, I haven't seen it. I Man, if I could give you a recommendation this week beyond ghosts, ghosts, and Abbott Elementary, uh, and more ghosts, would be to check out the uh, Fresh Prince doc on HBO Max. I was amazed at the uh, what their work week was when they were shooting. They were literally working like they were in a repertory theater company, coming in, running lines, rehearsing, and then on, they'd put on a show on Friday, basically, for the studio audience. And then they'd do some pickups, and the next week was the next episode. And they were in a routine where they were, sh you know, this was the peak of the network sitcom, churning out 22, 24 episodes a season, just basically in this week-to-week, -week, like a new episode every week. And at that pace, obviously, you have to give people breaks. You have to work in some, like, work-life balance there. But you can easily churn out a 22-episode season every year. And if you're really mm -hmm. ruthless, which a place like Netflix certainly has a reputation for being sometimes, you could churn out way more. Absolutely. I am looking forward to the new Mike Schur show that's coming out next year. Uh, it's called Primo, and it's co-created with Shay Serrano. And it's going to be on freebie freebie <laughs> oh we made it we made it a freebie reference we have to get at least one in per episode Oh, thank you, Diane. I can't believe we almost mm -hmm. missed that. Well, <laughs> if you, dear listener, are as thrilled about the future of Freebie as we are, or if you have thoughts about the state of the network sitcom or comedy on streaming in general, uh, send us your thoughts. Send us your recommendations. It's podcast at streamageddon.com. Uh, if you check out Ghosts or Ghosts, tell us which of the ghosts you like the most. Who's your favorite ghost? And on which ghosts is that ghost ghosting? 
But we promise to never ghost you. We'll always let you know when the episode is coming to an end, which is right now. So, you know, have a great streaming week, Diane. And you, Chris. We will haunt your podcast feeds just as soon as we have another show to talk about. Bye.